listening to First Church Charlotte. So we are going to read in John chapter number four. Uh, let's just kind of uh, read a scripture and then we'll jump down through the passage. Verse number one, therefore, when Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he, Jesus, left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. Uh, this is, in chapter number four, the story of the Samarian woman. Uh, this woman meets Jesus at the well. You have all of, all of you heard the story of the Good Samaritan, right? You've heard the story of the Good Samaritan, the man who took care of his neighbor. Today, I'm going to preach a story about the Bad Samaritan. You've heard about the Good Samaritan. Now meet the Bad Samaritan. Before you're seated, smile at your neighbor. Say, you need to talk about the Bad Samaritan for a little while. <laughs> Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. <clears throat> all right. All right. All right. So I have been challenged in my spirit recently to evaluate what it is that I uh, draw uh, hope from, what it is I draw entertainment from, what it is I draw contentment from, where does my satisfaction lie. Uh, there is a whole industry in our capitalistic society that is, of course, vying for your attention. Uh, one of the results of this media-driven technology age is that the real competition happening nowadays is not simply for your money, it's for your attention. Because what the capitalist knows is that if they can get your attention, then they have everything else for free. Did you hear what I just said? If they get your attention, they get everything else for free. Uh, Dewan and I were talking the other day, and he put this little statement together. And I like it when a statement is well said. Uh, he said, you know, in the church, we're in the people business, but we have to remind ourselves we're in the attention business. Before you get the people, you, you have to get the attention of the people. And so whether it is entertainment, <clears throat> whether it is uh, uh, various industries that are competing for us, our time, our money, our attention, everybody starts by trying to get your attention. And there are so many billions, literally billions of dollars that are being spent by nearly everyone who has a buck to make to try to get and to keep your attention. And as a church, we are also trying to get attention from people in our world. The difference is we don't want something from them. We want something for them. <clears throat> That's important distinction to make. We don't simply want something from them. We want something for them. In order for that to happen, we have to get their attention. I am praying that our church would get direction from the Lord in how to get the attention of our city. And I would like all of you to pray with me this week, in this week of prayer and fasting. I'd like you to pray with me on how our church can go about getting right attention from the needs.
needy souls that are in this city. We don't simply want to be an inward focusing church. We want to look at the field. It is ready. It is ready and white for harvest. And so if the Lord would give us the open door, then we will step through it in faith. Can I have some agreement in the house? And so you see this, this moment in the scripture where Jesus has decided to leave where he has been and go back to Galilee. And it is quite interesting here because uh, he is avoiding confrontation with the Pharisees. Jesus really is more interested in ministry than he is in debate. Jesus is more interested in seeing lives touched and changed than he is arguing with people over whether or not lives should be touched or changed. In my own life, I want to live this theme for myself. I'm not more interested in being right than I am in being effective. Do you see what I'm trying to say? I don't want to argue. I don't want to fight. Not when we are surrounded by a world that needs us to represent the gospel of hope to them. And I, I'm thankful as a church, we don't have a very contentious culture. We, as a church, really don't want to fight about things. We, we don't want to, uh, you know, as it were, try to win by intellectual dominance or theological debate. We want to win the biblical way, which is to win through love. <clears throat> I know there are some Christians that struggle with that. They, they want to pick selective scriptures and they want to say, see, our, our, Goal is to uh, out-argue them, and therefore we will study to show ourselves approved. I, I, I would suggest that we do not study simply to be right. We study to have effective ministry. Do you see that, that, that Jesus does not want to fight with the Pharisees right now, but when they realize that he is having more of an influence upon the people than even John the Baptist did, the disciples of Jesus are baptizing. They are doing what John the Baptist did. The Pharisees don't like this at all. They come showing up. They see Jesus as a competitor. They say Jesus as competing for the hearts and the minds of the people. Jesus is interested in the hearts and the minds of the people. <clears throat> and so uh, Jesus decides this is not a good time for a fight. And he decides to go to Galilee. In Galilee, there's been changes. Uh, John the Baptist has been thrown in prison in Galilee. And now where there had been a center of revival in Galilee, perhaps the greatest influence that was, was to happen in this time through the ministry of John the Baptist and afterward through the ministry of Jesus, that is going to happen in Galilee. And Jesus desires to go back to Galilee, perhaps, and I'm speaking of my own thoughts now, perhaps Jesus thinks that there is an open door now in Galilee. John the Baptist has been put in prison, and Jesus doesn't want the momentum of what has started there to end. The enemy is always trying to destroy momentum in the believer's life. The enemy is always trying to take the victory you had and get you to stop in your progress. Just stop. He doesn't care if you've made progress as long as the progress has stopped because the real prize is what happens next. God is taking us somewhere. God is taking you somewhere. We are progressing as spiritual sojourners in this land through which we are walking. And so you see Jesus decide to go to Galilee. Now Jews typically did not go through Samaria. <clears throat> 
when they made this journey to Galilee uh, from uh, uh, where Jesus is currently at. He, he decides, however, to take a shortcut and to go through Samaria. If you go through Samaria, it is a three-day journey. If you go around Samaria, as the proper Jews do, it is a seven-day journey, over twice as long. But most believing, zealous, righteous sons of Abraham would rather go twice as far as to commingle with those false doctrine, shameful Samaritans. Now, let me give you some insight into the Samaritans. You guys, many of you know this story, but it helps for all of us to be reminded. The Samaritans are the sons of Abraham. They are the sons of Jacob. Uh, It is within the tradition and the legacy of the great patriarchs that the Samaritans are part of that original covenant family. However, they uh, have been deceived and they have been turned away to a different ideal, a different, uh, how shall we say, a different doctrine. This happened a few years, a few centuries before uh, when there was a decision made and a political rebellion, a political change happened and the uh, Samaritans end up with a different doctrine. They end up with a different place of worship. They end up with a different temple, and yet they claim heritage with Abraham. They are the original false doctrine presentation to the law of the patriarchs. It is these individuals who have uh, introduced this other worship, this other uh, devotion, this other law, this other temple. It is through this error that there comes a doctrinal distinction between the Jews and the Samaritans. Now, why does this matter? Well, the Jews uh, come to hate, the first of all, the false doctrine of the Samaritans. Uh, that would have been fine if it had ended there, but it's against human nature for us to have discipline of heart and separate our loathing of a false doctrine from our loathing of the people who are a part of that false doctrine. We are taught in the New Testament to be people of grace. You want to be like Jesus? You cannot be more like Jesus than when you give grace to somebody. Oftentimes the church feels like we're like Jesus when we give law to somebody. But that's more like Abraham or Moses. We want to be most like Jesus when we give grace to someone. That means even if you do not agree with their life, you have to love them. Even if you don't approve of their doctrine, you have to choose to see the good in them. You have to give grace to them. Why? Because if we do not, then we are like the unforgiving servant who having been given forgiven everything ourselves cannot forgive the person who has ought or error or uh, in some way has transgressed against us. Let me say it to all of us. First church, let's give them grace. It does not weaken your truth to give anybody grace. It does not weaken your faith to give anybody grace. It does not weaken your testimony to give anybody grace. Nay, I say uh, in a very King Jamesian manner, uh, it strengthens your testimony to give somebody else grace. 
Let me remind you as a challenge to first of all, give grace to your own family. Give grace to your children who aren't doing so good. Give grace to your parents who have never understood you. Give grace to your neighbors whose lives are seven types of unorganized. Give grace. Don't think it weakens your testimony. No, it will testify of your transformation because love never fails. And so uh, the Jews, they only can give law, and so they despise the Samaritans. But Jesus goes through this uh, area of this part of the country, and he pauses beside Jacob's well. This is, this is a beautiful story, and there is a lot of depth to it. I just want to try to bring out a few new things for you today, if at all possible. Uh, Jesus stops by this well that is uh, by the city uh Sakar. Uh, it is the closest community to Jacob's well, uh, and that is where he will wait and send his disciples on on ahead. Jesus is tired, and he sends his disciples to the nearest town. The nearest town is this community that this lady is from, this lady of Samaria. She is walking toward the well. The disciples are walking toward the city. What is going to happen? They are going to cross paths. The disciples are walking to the city. The lady uh, is walking to the well. They cross paths. But being good Jewish men, men of excellent, upstanding character, they know better than to speak to a woman by herself. It is a breach of proper etiquette for any Jewish man to speak to a woman without her husband or father present. Do you see? It is a breach of etiquette. Jesus loves to break rules uh, at, uh, from time to time. And if you want to understand that in the scripture, I recently did a study of all the times where Jesus formally broke the rules. Uh, what's interesting is he does not break rules for the sake of the rules. He breaks rules to show that people matter more than the rules. <clears throat> that's, that's, that's a profound insight into the ministry of Jesus Christ. One of these traditions is that the Jewish man cannot speak to a, a woman uh, without her husband being there. And so uh, Jesus waits by the well, and this woman brings her empty water vessel in the heat of the day. It's probably around noon. It is in the heat of the day. This is when women do not carry water. It's probably the number one chore of women in this part of the world. All of you ladies are glad you have been set free from the chore of carrying water. But if you don't know what it's like, go get yourself a five-gallon bucket. That's about the amount of water they carried. Fill it up with water and uh, carry it around the neighborhood a few times. That would be a great insight into just how far the world has come. Can I get an amen from all the ladies in the house? <clears throat> Men didn't carry water. No, we had important things to do, like go to the marketplace and argue theology. <clears throat> And so uh, here she comes carrying her water uh, vessel and she comes to this well and she probably ignores Jesus and she begins the process of drawing water and Jesus speaks to her. This is a, an amazing thing because uh, it goes against, it goes against, it goes against everything that is expected in this society. And Jesus says, give me a drink. Now the, the disciples we see in verse number eight, they've gone to buy food. This woman says to him, how is it that you 
you being a Jew. The first thing I want to say is Jews don't talk to Samaritans. That's the point the woman wants to make. I, I know how these societies work, it seems, that she wants to say, and uh, we should not be talking to each other. Principle number one, <clears throat> I'm a Samaritan, you are a Jew. Principle number two, I am a man, and excuse me, you are a man and I am a woman. So how is it you being a Jew ask me to drink a Samaritan woman? And uh, she says to her, uh, to him, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus says this to her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who asked you to give me a drink, you would ask him and he would have given you living water. Somebody say living water. Excuse me, this is an important moment in Scripture. Do not rush past this. She, Jesus has asked her from a water, of water from the well. The water in the well varies in seasons and in times, but it probably was about 30 feet from the uh, area where the top of the well was to where the water was. It could have been much more than that. It could have been as much as 60 feet, depending on seasons and water tables, but it was at least 30 feet. So imagine dipping a vessel in the water and then pulling hand over hand a 30 feet lift of that full water vessel. That is a lot of work. Uh, again, if you don't believe that, you should try it for yourself. It is a lot of work. But once you get the water to the top of the well, you have sweet, sweet water, and that's a beautiful thing. You will be reminded, if you think about it, of what Isaiah said, and he said, with joy shall we draw water <clears throat> out of the wells of salvation. Isn't that a beautiful scripture? I love that scripture. But there's something different between a well and living water. When Jesus says living water, the woman does not hear it as though he is saying spiritual water. That is how we hear it. Why? It's because we know Jesus is speaking of the work, the completed work of his ministry, and he is going to give his spirit to all who will receive it. And we know biblically, because we look back and we see with 2020 vision, we can remind ourselves of John 7 verse 37, where on the last great day of the feast, Jesus cried out, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which ye that which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So we read that with understanding. And when Jesus says living waters, we think Holy Spirit. Jesus says living waters, what do you think? Holy Spirit. Let me, help, uh, let me, let me hear it a little better than that. Jesus says living waters, we think Holy Spirit. Okay, that's not what this woman thought. In this day, living waters is a spring. It's not a well. A well was considered dead water. And so in the terminology of the time, what Jesus is saying is you would not ask me to give you from a well. You would ask me to give you from a stream living water. What? It, oh, hallelujah. My goodness, I wish I could preach here today. What is the difference in water in a well and living water. Well, honey, you have to work hard to get water out of a well, but you can dive into living water. You 
don't have to work for living water. You don't have to throw a vessel deep and pull it hand over hand over hand. This is a picture of the difference between grace and the law. The law required you to strive. The law required you to work. The law required you to strain. And after you worked and after you worked and after you worked, then maybe if you were lucky, you would be given salvation. But grace is a different story. Grace is not salvation at the bottom of a well. Grace is living water. There is nothing I did to earn this. There is no work that is good enough for me to receive this. Grace is the gift of God. Oh, hallelujah. Somebody ought to shout some victory. Two different ways of looking at salvation. The old way of the law, I've got to be good or God's going to get me and then I'll be lost. And the grace way, there's nothing I can do to deserve salvation. Whatever I do can only testify of my love for God. If you love me, keep my commandments or a witness of his change in my life. Let men see your works and glorify your Father in heaven. There's nothing you can do to deserve salvation. You do not earn it. I heard one preacher to describe it like this. Let's say you're a good swimmer. Let's say you're the best swimmer on the ship and the ship sinks and you look at all those bad swimmers and you say within yourself those poor guys don't have a chance. They are bad swimmers and you start swimming and you start swimming. You can swim 20 miles. No one else on the ship can swim as good as you can swim. They're drowning after one mile and every time you swim by another swimmer you think to yourself I'm better than they are. I can swim better than they are. And you're stroking out so good and so strong. And you look at that one and this one drowns at the second mile. And you keep on, you say, oh, those poor darlings, they're not good like me. They're not excellent like me. And you get to the five mile walk. There's only a few people as good as you now. Just a handful and they start dropping like flies, but you're strong. And you keep swimming and you say within yourself, I can swim 20 miles. I've done it before. I am good. I'm the best person on the ship. And the preacher said, honey, that's not going to help you if you're 2,000 miles from the shore. The problem from with sin is this. It doesn't matter how good of a swimmer you are. You're 2,000 miles from shore. And if God does not send the lifeboat to pick you up out of your sins, there is no hope for you. That's the problem of being vain in our Christianity and looking down our nose at somebody who can only swim a mile and they can only swim two miles and you say, oh, I'm better than them. Honey, on your best day, you can't swim 2,000 miles. You need God to send a lifeboat. You need God to send a ship of Zion and hear your desperate cry. Oh, praise God. I'm getting loud and excited and... I figured out I burn about 400 calories an hour when I preach, so uh, I need to lose weight. So y'all are in for a long message here today. So this woman's used to rejection of men. What's interesting is uh, she's probably a, a bit of a complicated person, this lady uh, beside the well. She's probably complicated. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, she wasn't a slave uh, or she wasn't a freed slave because under Roman law, a freed slave could not be married. Now, obviously, we don't understand all the context of the time. Uh, so uh, I want to speak carefully. This is not doctrine. This is me trying to see some depth in the context of the time. And so um, if you were 
were a freeborn person, you could be married under Roman law. If you were a freed slave, uh, you could not be married under Roman law. Uh, you could be married over Hebrew law. Uh, you could go through a process and become married. We don't exactly know the governor of the time, what uh, adjudication was meted out for this area. But uh, she's been uh, divorced uh, five times, and she is living with a man now who is not her husband. This is kind of an awkward story, and, and, and Jesus points this out to her, and she is immediately humbled by it, and uh, she admits that he has an anointing upon him. Now, what is the context of this uh, conversation? Jesus has explained the difference in natural water and the difference in spiritual water, and that is verses 13 uh, and 14, and the spiritual water is satisfaction to the soul. Somebody say satisfaction. If you drink of that fountain of water, you shall never thirst again. Rather than needing satisfaction, you will have within you a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman says, give me this water. He says, call your husband. She says, I have no husband. He said, yep, you are being honest. You've had five husbands. The one you're with is not your husband. And she says, I perceive that you are a prophet. Oh, so you are a prophet. Well, let's be religious. It amazes me how people with the most messed up lives, you get them in a religious experience and a church house or it's so funny to me how people immediately change when they find out I'm a pastor. I quit telling people I'm a pastor because they immediately change. I can talk to somebody and they'll be all slouched down, you know, gangster style. They'll be all roll, you know, talking and dropping every curse word you can talk about. And I say, hey, I'm Nathan Elms, a pastor first church. And they're like, praise the Lord. It may be a North Carolina thing. I don't know. I don't know. But it, people immediately change. And they start. They take on this whole demeanor that is not even who they are. I know because I didn't tell them for six months. And now they get religious on me. And I'm just like, really? What do you think I am? I'm like, I'm not going to figure this out. I know who you are. And uh, the, so the moment Jesus is perceived as a prophet, she gets religion. And she begins to discuss theology. Now, why do I say she's probably a, 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 a complex person? I, I think this is a very strong-willed woman, like some of you guys. Very strong-willed woman. Why? She's been divorced five times. Now, under both Hebrew law and Roman law, it's quite difficult. It's quite difficult for a woman to divorce a man. A woman has to go through a temple system under Jewish, uh, and it's difficult under Roman also. Um, it's very, di- but it's very easy for a man to divorce a woman in this time. In this time, a man can give a woman a letter. You burnt the toast. See ya. Boom. <clears throat> I tried that on my wife. She gave me a black eye. It does not work. <clears throat> does not work, but in this time, it was very easy for a man to divorce a woman. It was pretty difficult for a woman to divorce a man. She had to show that he had not kept his duties. So, um, why do I say she's strong? Five men have said, I am done with you. (laughs) Holy moly. And has given her a letter of dismissal. And they're like, I just can't deal with you. She is a strong woman. She told him the truth about him five times. And not one of the five versions of him liked it. 
Okay, and so now she's just living with this guy in a concubinal relationship, which actually is a little bit a little bit more formal than we think of it in this particular time. The concubine relationship is more formal formal than it is now. Nowadays, if you have a concubine, that's just called adultery, and you will soon be in divorce court. Just so you know, if there was any any questions about that, uh, and so here she is. She is a strong woman, and I think you see this. Women did not talk theology. Women did not, were not raised in the synagogue system and they did not get educated in the same manner the boys did. They had a very different, and women were mostly silent in the synagogue, uh, and thus you can see Paul's preference for that in the New Testament church. Uh, And so this is the world she's in, but she's a strong woman. Not only that, she's an intelligent woman. She's not willing just to sit there and, well, you just tell me whatever to think and I'll think it. She's done with that. She did that in her 20s, and then she was done with it. And she's like, no, I will think for myself. And she has explored theology. In the words she says, she explains the nuances of the difference. She really, very in a very effective, in a very concise manner, she cuts to the quick of the difference between the theology of the Jews and the theologies of the Samaritans. And uh, this is shown here in this, this scripture. Your fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. There is a history here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jacob dug this well here. Jacob built an altar here. It must be okay to worship here. Or Jacob would have been wrong to do it. But you Jews say you can't worship here. Just the... Samaritans and Eric can worship here. You've got to go to Jerusalem to worship. She understands. She she gets it. She is intelligent. And at this moment, you will see uh, Jesus open up greater understanding and say believe me the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem uh, will they worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship you, we worship what we worship for salvations of the Jews. But in other words the Jews have an idea re- relative to the Messiah. The Samaritans don't have a Messiah complex like the Jews do. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is a spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We love this passage. We preach it. We sing it. We testify it. And I want you to back off of the typical message that is preached here. And I want you to see another story that is going on in this moment. And that is this. A woman who has a bad reputation. She is not the good Samaritan. She's a bad Samaritan. She does not like people. The village is ugly to her. Why do we think that? Well, she's had this rather difficult life. Not only that, she doesn't draw water when the other people draw water. They normally would draw in the morning or in the evening in the cool of the day, but she goes in the heat of the day because she would rather sweat than have people look down their noses at her. Isn't it interesting how many, if you ask people why they don't go to church, they never say doctrine. They always point out something that happened to them in the church. Isn't that amazing? It is, of course, much easier to believe in Jesus, he's perfect, than it is to believe in the church. 
If you're going to be a part of a church, you're going to have to put up with imperfections. You're going to have to put up with misunderstandings. But God said you will have a greater chance of being used by him and for him and being saved through him in a body of believers than you will ever have by yourself. Don't have time to preach that. The church with all its imperfections is a place for you to grow. The church with all of its imperfections is a place for you to find hope. It's a place for you to minister. It's a place for you to return your gifts and talents to God. And so here's this woman alone and she is seeking water and Jesus wants to talk about a different kind of water that brings satisfaction to her lives. How do we find satisfaction? I want you in this week of prayer and fasting, I want you to every day ask God to help you understand what it is you are seeking satisfaction through. Help you understand the errors if you have them in thinking the things of this world can satisfy. I'm here to preach to you today and tell you the things of this world cannot satisfy. Or the people who had the most of this world would be the happiest people in this world. If the world satisfied, then the people who had the most in it would have the most happiness of it. But you will find the exact opposite. The people with the most of the world are often the least satisfied by the world. You know, it's it's people who, and this is just an interesting human uh, uh, observation here. If you're around people who grew up very, very poor, a lot of times they have a drive in them, a great drive. Now, all of us are, are, are fairly wealthy by the world standards. You only have to uh, uh, make uh, a few thousand dollars to be in the, the top percentages of wealth in the world. Now, in America, you could still be in poverty, uh, and you would still be one of the richest in the world. So, uh, a lot of us grew up, even though we think of ourselves as poor, we were quite blessed, speaking respectively. All wealth is uh, simply perspective. It's simply, it's all relative. There's somebody who wishes they had what you have. And so uh, here you have this reality uh, that uh, poor people think having things will make them make them happy. People who have money, they think having the things money can't buy is what makes them what could make them happy. Do you see? And so they're jealous if you have the things money can't buy. They already have all the stuff money can buy. What am I trying to say to you this week? We need to look at our heart and we need to ask ourselves, am I lying to myself to think this world is going to satisfy me? If I'm, Am I lying to myself thinking that the right hobby or the right relationship, if you're single, no, no spouse, no boyfriend, no girlfriend can ever replace the Spirit of God in your life here today. And you should not, you should not try to force that to happen. You should not try to rush that happen. It can be painful and lonely to be single, but being in a bad relationship is a special kind of hell. Anyway, moving along, dropping too much wisdom on you here today. Uh, And so what I want you to see here, we fall into these mistakes of thinking that if we had the right amount of things, we would be happy. If we were uh, the leader of our little world, then we would be happy. If we had the approval of humanity, then we would be happy. If we had the right career, then we'd be happy. I'm here to tell you, none of these things give lasting satisfaction. But there is a well of water 
that doesn't simply stay deep in your soul, but this well springs up out of your soul. And it doesn't require you to draw with work and this strain and this bucket, but God's gift in your life is the gift of God. If you can let God take his right place in your heart and in your life, I'm here to tell you that is where joy unspeakable will be found. And so, Jesus, Jesus, having ministered this woman, says to her, I who speak to you am he. What are you saying, Jesus? He is saying, I am the Messiah. Now, I want you to see what happens. This woman then, uh, in her shock and awe, kind of takes a step back, like, oh my goodness, this could be the Messiah. And at that moment, the disciples come back. And the first thing they're shocked by is that Jesus would talk to a woman like this. Uh, they are, at this point, very <clears throat> devout <clears throat> religious students. And they would not speak to this woman on the way to the town to buy food. And when they get back, they find Jesus doing what they were too spiritual to do. Isn't it amazing how... <laughs> You know you're in a bad religious culture when God's not even welcome there. <laughs> and uh, so they're astonished. They marveled. That's the word the Bible year used. But no one would challenge him. They knew better than to get him stirred up. This woman is so shocked, she leaves her water pot, and she goes her way into the city, and she begins to testify to the same community that she had been avoiding. And she says this, come see a man who told me all things I ever did. Is this not, could this be the Christ? And they went out to the city, and they came to Jesus. Now, while this is going on, the disciples are trying to get him to eat, but Jesus is waiting on the people for the city. He is waiting for the people from the city to come. And he says, I have food to eat of which you do not know. And the disciples misunderstand. Did someone bring him a Big Mac and fries while we were in town at the store? We thought we were going to Chick-fil-A. And then someone brought him a Big Mac out here. And he says, my food is to do the will of God. Church, what satisfies us? What really satisfies us? I prayed about this over the last uh, uh, several years. What is really satisfying to us? And I went into uh, my own heart and thought about moments where I have a dread because it's, a, it's hard for me to do some particular part of ministry. And I begin to hope and pray that God would change that in me. And I would begin to love doing what was a dread to me. Why, why, why? The most satisfying things in our life must be that we are able to be a part of the work of God. And the most satisfying opportunities to us should be that we are able to do the will of him who sent us. Then Jesus says to these disciples, let's talk about the harvest. Don't say that in four months or so, then there's going to be a harvest. I'm saying to you, the harvest is right now. It is right now. It is a spiritual thing. There is a revival that is coming. And while he's talking, the people from the village are walking toward him. It's about a mile walk. They're walking to where he is. And Jesus is saying to them, as the Samaritan 
mountains come. He says there's a harvest right now. I want you to see something. You know how we read that scripture? We read it like this. Today is the day of revival. There's a harvest now. Jesus wasn't talking to us. We're looking over the shoulder of history. Jesus is talking to his disciples. They're standing in Samaria, a place where no one cares if these people come to God. And Jesus takes his disciples to Samaria. They're better than everybody in Samaria. And Jesus says to them, there's a harvest right here, right now, among the very people. Jesus is talking while the people of Samaria come. There's a harvest right now. And he says, this saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. You know what he's doing here? In my own understanding, he is identifying a revival that's about to happen in Samaria with the tradition that goes all the way back to these people being the children of Jacob. Yes, they don't believe the same now. Yes, they're in error now. Yes, they're in false doctrine now, but we're going to reap where we have not sowed. Granted in Charlotte, Lord Jesus, I pray. Granted in this area, I pray, Lord Jesus. And so I want to read the next verse, which I have never heard read in any message preached on the woman from Samaria. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he taught me all things that I ever did. And when the Samaritans came to him, the revival that was there right then, they asked him to stay. And many believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, now we believe. This is an interesting insight into human nature. Not because of what you said, but because we heard for ourselves. People are never going to give you credit for the good work that you do. They weren't having revival till she came into the town telling them a testimony, but they don't want to give her a credit. They want to take their own credit for revival. People are just, it's human nature. You can't do anything with it, right? Out of this woman's, out of this woman's faith comes great revival. And the next interesting thing is Jesus goes from there to Galilee and he tells his disciples, look, they're not going to accept me in Galilee. A prophet is not without honor or save in his own country. That's what he says to them in verse number 44. Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they had also gone to the feast. There's not going to be a revival in Galilee in the same manner there was in Samaria. Oh, I want to tell you something here today. There's, there, there's depth in this story, but this is the, what I am feeling so much in this seven days of prayer and fasting. Where does our spiritual satisfaction lie? If it is not in the things of God, the kingdom of God, then we need a personal revival. Are you hearing me? If it is not in the things of God and the presence of God, we need a revival because there is a great revival to be had. Are you hearing what I'm saying? In your life, in the very place where you think people won't receive you, there's a revival waiting for you there. Come on. 
The breakthrough's not where you expect it. Oftentimes, the great breakthrough is in places you did not even see it coming. And so let me speak to you today this example of the scripture. In this place where you did not expect it in your life among the neighbor you did not expect to believe when you take your testimony to them what is your testimony is not he the son of God is not Jesus the son of God is he not the Messiah is he not a prophet sent from God when you take your testimony oh hallelujah people are going to get interested and they are going to respond. We are praying for apostolic Holy Ghost revival in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our hearts. It's going to start with you. We must become the people who celebrate the power of God. That's all this woman had to do. She went with a story. Man, I have met the Messiah. He told me things no one else could tell me. That is the simple testimony of our lives. But I'm here to tell you today, if the church will get busy testifying of God's greatness, testifying of His great works, celebrating His power, glorifying His promise, creating a heart that is going to exalt the name of Jesus, if we'll do that, other people are going to receive they're going to come and out of our heart out of our heart passion is going to be a great revival church what are we seeking to find satisfaction from i want my satisfaction to be found by the presence and the power of almighty god let's all stand oh hallelujah Pray with me right now, Lord Jesus. I'm praying for an apostolic Holy Ghost revival in our lives. I'm praying for a spiritual breakthrough that is astonishing to us. I'm praying that the person we never would dream would come to faith will be the very person who lifts up their hands and surrenders their life to you, oh God. I'm praying as a church that we would celebrate, exalt, and glorify you in such a manner that we don't have time to fight over it. We simply celebrate it and hungry hearts are drawn to you. Lord Jesus, I'm praying you would do the miraculous among us. I'm praying that you would heal. I'm praying that you would anoint. I'm praying that you would bless. In Jesus' name I pray. Would you step out of the chair you're in right now, now church? We're going to come down to the front. We're going to sing together. We're going to worship together. We're going to glorify God together. We're going to remind our soul of where our satisfaction lies in Him. Would you come right now? Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, Come join us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road at the corner of Shamrock Drive, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m., and Bible Study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Online, find us at firstchurchclt.com or like us on Facebook or Twitter. We hope to see you soon. Come worship with us.